for three years around the time of Canadian Confederation, an aristocratic British author lived in Fredericton, and she wrote voluminous letters back home describing daily life there. During this time, she formed an unlikely and really strong friendship across two cultural worlds with a Willistaquay artisan and master canoe builder named Peter Poldcheese. It all ended in a social scandal that set the Fredericton Gossip Mill into high gear. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes. With your host and author, Andrew McLean. Twenty-eight-year-old Juliana Horatia Ewing was certainly of an aristocratic pedigree. Even her middle name was a nod to Lord Horatio Nelson, England's most famous sailor. Her grandfather had been a young chaplain and translator working closely with that celebrated admiral during his wars against Napoleon's French Empire. She was living during the Victorian times, when women were not allowed to do much of anything, and she walked a fine line between being a demure, ladylike wife to a high-ranking British officer, while also at the same time carving out her own sphere as a famous author. Juliana Horatia Ewing focused mostly on children's books, which was also not something that had really been done before her. Even the concept of a childhood itself was a relatively new idea in Victorian times. According to historian Philippe Arras, adolescence was almost unknown before this time, and he declares that once a child had reached the age of six or seven, they would become part of the adult world complete with having to get a job. But you guys already know Julia Horatia Ewing. She's appeared in Backyard History podcast episodes Getting Away with Murder, and also in her most recent episode, Christmas 1868. As I'm sure you'll recall, her husband Alexander Ewing, who she always called My Darling Rex, was posted in Fredericton with the British military, and she'd come along with him for this three-year posting in Fredericton. Before departing England, she had been warned by her peers, people who had, by the way, almost likely never been overseas, to avoid the dangerous indigenous people when she was in Fredericton. It was a bit of an equal opportunity warning. She was also warned against avoiding black people, Irish people, poor people, and so on. But anyways, almost immediately after her arriving, though, for the first time she met, in her own words, what she called a North American She had gone out to explore shops, and she was disappointed to find that everything is dearer and inferior in this place. Returning home, carrying a giant salmon that she had just bought, Juliana described what happened next in a letter to her sister, named Dottie. Coming back with a splendid fish, I met an old North American woman. She was such a picturesque picture. She wore a striped shawl, but curiously thrown around her like a blanket a black cap embroidered with beads, a short black petticoat, and black trousers stuffed into her moccasins. I didn't think she was half as degraded looking as they told me. I spoke to her. She said she was going to catch the train. It sounded so curious to me, like hearing of Plato engaged for a polka. It was the pants she was wearing that surprised Juliana the most. In that time, women wearing pants would have been quite a startling sight. 
Soon, however, it would be the woman's moccasins that Juliana would become obsessed with. European settlers had fallen in love with moccasins from the moment they arrived, and being lightweight, durable, waterproof, and compact, moccasins were popular with everyone from early French explorers to aristocratic Victorian elites, right through to working-class lumberjacks working in the logging camps. At first, Juliana didn't even know what the moccasins were, and she called them Canadian Overshoes. She noticed that the hottest fashion item in Fredericton in 1867 were moccasins, and so, being a fashionable lady, she wrote home declaring, Moccasins, I have now decided, are the best. I must have a set. Always mindful of the latest fashion trends, Juliana became determined to get a pair of moccasins for herself. She decided to cross the river to Satansic to buy some. Likely, all that she knew of Satansic, which is also known as the St. Mary's First Nations Reserve, was the rhythmic drum-like sounds that could echo across the river. That was the sound of ash logs being pounded to separate annual growth layers to make splints for basket making. For Fredericktonians on the other side of the river, that sound comes across in letters all the time from that time period as the peaceful sound of everyday life. And that sound was as reliable a sign of winter's end to Fredertonians of the time as the ribbiting of the spring peepers. Juliana's immediate reaction when she arrived was intense surprise that the old lady was not a one-off. But in fact, all of the Willistaquay women were dressed in pants. She found that they spoke French and English in addition to the Willistaquay language and dressed in a sort of middle ground that mixed the traditional attire and European styles of the time. She noticed that women wore their hair in what Ewing called wisps and often wore beaver skin top hats of the sort that European upper class men wore, a sight that astonished Ewing. They would drape colorful graceful blankets, as she called them, over their shoulders. Sometimes the women wore dresses over their pants, but from Juliana's incredulous descriptions, the pants and the top hats were quite ubiquitous amongst Willistaquay women. This would have been quite the contrast to all the layers of dresses and petticoats and corsets that Juliana was likely wearing. And then she met Peter Polchies. The Polchis family were famous for their canoe-building skills. Like many people from Satansic, it seems that he diversified his crafting into items that could be sold to tourists. These included beadwork and basket weaving and so on. Juliana doesn't record her first impression of Peter Polchis while she was there. She bought a pair of moccasins for herself from him and a pair of snowshoes for her husband. However, she didn't have any money with her, so she took the items home and promised to pay Peter Pulci's back. Their second encounter came a couple of days later, when Peter Pulci's came to her door looking for the money that she still owed him. As a resident of Tansic, Peter Pulci's anxiety over being potentially defrauded by a European person is perhaps easy to understand in his context. Peter Polchies was then 47 years old, and he was likely descended from the people who had once lived at Acapulco, which was some seven miles outside of Fredericton. The residents of what had once been one of the most important Willistaquay settlements 
were forced off of their land after a fraudulent land purchase by a judge named Isaac Allen. Later, they were invited to settle on a large portion of land on what is now the north side of the river in Fredericton. They cleared at least 14 acres of that land, but unbeknownst to them, that land which they were working on and clearing was being sold and resold by Europeans who had kept the deed without their knowledge. Around the time Juliana was moving to Fredericton, they were being forced to move onto a tiny two and a half acres that today encompasses the St. Mary's First Nations Reserve. A few years later, in 1883, after Juliana had departed, St. Mary's petitioned Canada's federal government to redress how they were defrauded of their land. As far as I could tell, it doesn't appear that the federal government actually responded. It doesn't seem likely that Juliana Horatia Ewing actually knew any of this, though. When she opened the door that day, all she saw was the fellow that had made and sold her the moccasins. She'd really enjoyed the work that he'd done on them, and she actually wrote enthusiastically to her sister Dot about those moccasins, and she even included a sketch of them in her letter, in which she said, They look quite as if they've cost about five guineas out of Madame Elise's, or whatever her name is, shop on Boulevard des Italiens in Paris. So, with him at her door, she ordered several more pairs to send to her family back in England. And she ordered a second pair of snowshoes for the winter. She was jealous of her husband's snowshoeing, and she wanted a pair for herself. When she told him this, she wrote to her sister that Peter Polchies guffawed loudly at the idea of my having them. Interpreting Peter Polchies laughter as implying that he thought she was incapable of snowshoeing, it only redoubled her determination to do so. When Fredericton was covered in snow, Peter Polchies returned to her house with her brand new pair of snowshoes. He taught her how to snowshoe around her yard, which she was proud of, writing, We practiced around the garden, got in splendidly, and I didn't tumble once. However, when she emerged from her garden to snowshoe around town, it turned out that Peter Polchies wasn't the only one who was laughing. Soldiers at the barracks spotted her coming from a quarter of a mile away, and by the time that she reached them, they were all laughing so hard they couldn't breathe. Though one gasped, Mrs. Ewing on snowshoes, waddling up a snowbank. She sullenly wrote, Captain Patton did yell with laughing so loud that I told him he could be heard in St. John. Although Peter Polchies reassured her that she snowshoed just as gracefully as a Woolastaquay woman, which is really quite a compliment. She acknowledged, My gait is rather peculiar, a sort of upright swing of a walk. It turned out that Peter Pulchies hadn't doubted her ability to snowshoe. After all, all of the Wollstokwe women he knew snowshoed. But they did it while wearing pants. He was laughing at the idea of her snowshoeing around in those ankle-length dresses with the petticoats and the corsets that she always wore, something which, it turned out, he wasn't the only one to find funny. And after this, we see Peter Polchies reappear several times across the letters that Juliana Horatia Ewing sent home. As we saw in the last episode, she got sick over that Christmas. She caught a flu that was going around, but with her usual flair for the dramatic, you'd have thought she was on her deathbed. Concerned, Peter Polchies came to pay her a visit. He was partly delivering some moccasins that her husband had ordered for a Christmas gift for her, and partly delivering her a present from himself sheet music 
for Christmas songs. For her part, Juliana gave him a Christmas music box. The following summer, Juliana appears to have developed a passion for canoeing. Peter Polchies and indeed his whole family were master canoe builders for generations. It was his true passion in life, and it had been how he had made his living before the events of his home being moved, which we saw earlier in the fraudulent land deal. This whole business of him and his wife making moccasins and other smaller trinkets for tourists was an economic necessity to make ends meet on the new, smaller amount of land. He had always identified himself as a canoe builder. Juliana Horatio Ewing went full in in her new passion for canoeing. She not only wanted to just go canoeing on the river, but she developed an ambitious plan to canoe to and from Grand Falls. The next thing to Niagara, they say. With her husband. This new fixation began after Peter took her and her husband Rex out in a canoe. It really is the most fascinating amusement we have tried yet. I tried a paddle today to give my valuable assistance in helping the canoe along. One art Rex has not yet acquired is sort of a juggler's trick, that of carrying his canoe. Imagine taking hold of the side of a canoe and overturning it neatly onto your head without injuring either your skull or the canoe's bottom. It looks awful. Later on that summer, she would come into canoeing on her own. and She became particularly known for what was considered by the other aristocratic ladies as a rather eccentric activity. She would go out in the canoe alone on the waterfront of Fredericton and she would paddle a little bit upriver. And then she would pull in her paddle and she would just sit in the canoe either sketching the city as she floated back down the river or working on one of her books while the canoe lazily drifted downriver. After it reached the far end of the city, she would then put her paddle back in the water and paddle back up to the other side of the city and do it all again. It was possibly Peter Polchies that Juliana Horatia Ewing had in mind when she caused a scandal at the governor's ball on New Year's Eve. She violated her Victorian culture's norms and caused quite the little mini-scandal amongst the elites, which was the subject of much gossip over what happened that night. Actually, it wasn't even Victorian-era norms that were going on here. Even today, it would still be considered to be a real faux pas to go to a fancied holiday dress party and get into a public argument about politics with your partner's boss. But that is exactly what Juliana Horatia Ewing did that night. The Governor's Ball was called the New Year's Eve Levy, and it was the highlight of Frederick's social calendar. Not only were the wealthy elites all there, but it was even open to ordinary people. They would don their finest attire and they would travel from far and wide to attend the levee. It doesn't seem that Peter Pulches, or for that matter any Willistiquay, attended that year. Although that's remarkable because for decades the main event of the annual levee was called the Dance of Nations, when Willistiquay people would make a grand entrance and perform a dance. After they finished their dance, then the European settlers would then take the floor and they would perform a traditional cultural dance of themselves, which was a waltz for the Wollastaquay. Indeed, dating back at least 190 years ago, it was common to have Wollastaquay elders and chiefs as part of opening ceremonies for cultural events or grand openings. In the 1830s, New Brunswick was terrified of being invaded by the Americans and worked to foster strong links with the Wollastaquay people 
to ensure they'd be allies. By the time that we're talking about 30-odd years later, Julia and Horatia Ewing's time, New Brunswick was part of a brand new country called Canada, and it could count on this powerful union to dissuade American invasions. And they quickly began ignoring these long-standing old traditions from back when New Brunswick was its own colony. The guest of honor that year at the New Year's Eve levy was a high-ranking British colonel who'd come up from Halifax just to attend the party. He was Juliana's husband's boss. During that evening, according to Juliana's letters, the colonel broached the topic. Will a wave of barbarism ever sweep away the civilization of Europe? Now, the barbarism that the colonel was referring to was the same people that Juliana called a North American. Juliana Horatia Ewing wrote to her sister later, describing the events. She wrote that she had felt anger rising within her as the colonel said that, but she managed to keep quiet until the colonel asked the assembled crowd. Do people like the here respect and admire us for our superior cleverness and our civilization? For instance, does a railway adequately impress them? Ewing wrote that she responded, No! She had five exclamation points after that in her letter. And at this point, she wrote that she fired back at the colonel, saying, You say that only fools wonder, but only the wise wonder, for only the wise know where the earthly possibilities end. Perhaps catching herself, she recounted to the colonel the legend of Salone, writing, A man read that from midnight on Christmas Eve until noon of Christmas Day, animals in Salone can speak. This man imagines when he journeys to Salone with his pets, they will declare their admiration for him. However, when he gets there, at the appointed time, once they can speak, and he finally listens to them for once, they instead tell him he is selfish, inadequate, and stupid. The only part of her speech that Fredericton's really remembered, though, was that the famous British author, Juliana Horatia Ewing, called her husband's boss, who was, you have to remember, the highest-ranking British officer in the entire Maritimes region, selfish, inadequate, and stupid. She, however, told her sister that when she had this outburst, she had been thinking of my brother Peter and all that she had studied with him. The scandal didn't really seem to have too much in the terms of long-term social effects on the Ewing standings, though, or on Rex's career. He was promoted soon after, and the Ewings soon received word that they would be departing Fredericton forever that spring. Juliana took to spending more time in the Satansic with Peter Polchies before she left, paying him to make many different keepsakes and souvenirs to take with her back to England when she left. He constructed things like miniature canoes, peace pipes, carvings, and above all, more and more moccasins for all of her friends and relatives back in England. Before departing back home to England, never to return, Juliana Horatia Ewing and her husband presented Peter Pulcius with Rex's rifle. He was determined to make Peter a present of this, for he's a good fellow. And one does not cheat someone, so we resolved to give him something. I wish you could have seen him. He burst out laughing and laughing. Peter told me it was the first present I ever received from a gentleman. I will not forget it until the last day I live. He told me, I am very thankful to you. In his own language, the graceful candor of it was quite pretty. It had a thoroughly gentlemanly air, almost grandiosean. They speak capitally, slowly, with a tone that is attractive 
and totally without the slurs, skips, and misaccents that make our own language vulgar. I must tell you that Rex regrets bitterly that we did not take up the language earlier. Before departing, Julianne Horatio Ewing made one final sketch of Peter Pulci's. This is found now in her museum dedicated to her in Sheffield, England. It was different from her usual sketching style, and doesn't depict a type, but rather it's an affectionate drawing of someone that she spent much time with as he worked away doing something he loved. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.